Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is The Next Move, where we're talking about how we can build the future we want from this moment. Today, we're going to dig into the work that needs doing, how we transform our government and do that in a way that creates meaningful, equitable jobs for everyone. The COVID-19 pandemic is shaping up to be one of the most financially devastating moments in American history. By the end of June, roughly 30 million Americans were getting some sort of unemployment benefits, and that doesn't count millions of folks who fall outside formal systems. In 2008, by comparison, less than 9 million jobs were lost. And what I know is this, we need to do way better this time. I don't know if most folks remember this, but when the financial crisis first hit, there was lots of media coverage, but in terms of visible public unrest, it was like crickets. And then People's Action was headquartered in Chicago, found out the American Bankers Association was going to have their annual convention in Chicago, like soon after the crisis. And we were not a strong organization at the time, but we felt like we had a moral obligation to greet them. And thousands of folks showed up with multiple days of protests and actions. And that really set off a period of us moving lots of people into the streets to really make public the private pain so many people were feeling across the country. And it was around this time that I met Heather McGee. And Heather McGee is many things. She's a distinguished fellow with Demos now. I know she's the former president of Demos. But when I met Heather, she was somebody that was super tuned in to the potential to bridge people across race and place. And Heather was also super clear on the emergence of the Tea Party, what that meant and the role that racism played in the organization of the Tea Party. And so I felt really lucky to meet Heather in this pivotal moment in American life. And 12 years later, excited to talk to her about like what we got right in that period and and maybe what we missed and the implications for those lessons on where we go from here. I'm curious what you think, what successes we had in terms of meaning making in the fallout of the financial crisis and where maybe we came up short. Well, let me start with where we came up short. You know, I think we came up short because the financial crisis began 10 years earlier in mostly Black middle-class homeowning communities where a brand new financial product was tested out and really experimented on. Um, really the first generation of Black Americans to have their shot at the American dream. And these were people who owned homes and they were aggressively marketed inflated interest rate loans that were more expensive than they qualified for. And they were wealth stripping loans that had balloon payments and prepayment penalties. And if the people who had the power to stop it, the Fed, national bank regulators, Congress, had stopped it back when it was only a problem for black and brown homeowners, we simply wouldn't have had a financial crisis. That's the truth that I know, having been on the front lines in the early 2000s. That's the truth that you know in that same position. But now, 20 years later from when the crisis started, that's actually not the conventional wisdom. And you can even hear big Democrats, including Democrats who were in charge after the crash, saying, you know, if people had just you know, not taken out bigger loans than they could afford, or if they had um, understood their financial statements better, as if it wasn't a full-scale nationwide theft that was coordinated mm -hmm. at the highest yeah. levels. 
So our, our quickness to blame Black and brown people for their own victimization is, is one of the core undertoes that we have always got to be organized to stop. And I think that really takes me to this moment where as soon as it became clear about COVID-19 that Black and brown and immigrant people are being hit the hardest, we all needed to mobilize to make sure that we were putting the blame on the people who let this happen today and the people who are actually profiting right now from this crisis and not on some kind of pathology with black and brown people. So I would say the fact that the meaning continues to be made that blames black and brown people for our own oppression and exploitation is a through line of a, of a loss that I see between both of these crises. Mm. However, I think that we are already seeing a more a, attention to the disparity, right? You wouldn't have even known at this point in the financial crisis if you were just, you know, reading everyday newspapers. You wouldn't have even known that subprime mortgages were targeted at communities of color. Whereas already in the COVID nineteen crisis, we know about the racial disparities. Now, mm. what is the meaning we're making of why there's the blaming of the victim? There's the pathologies. There's the you know, black people are unhealthy, um, which is you know. A very different story than Black people are actually saving the country and putting our bodies on the line and are the most exposed. We are the most likely to be essential workers, whether it's government workers or healthcare workers or, you know, service sector and delivery drivers. And so it's really a contested space. Um, I think we have the, the organizing infrastructure now that is much more attuned to the racial narrative. You know, the racial justice community is stronger. Uh, the bench is deeper. The tactics are more vibrant. There's a lot more, you know, new blood and, and distributed organizing. And the multiracial, multi-issue community organizing has a better race lens and understands that race has to be a part of the story. That is a total shift from what it was uh, during the financial crisis. And as we know, for better or for worse, politicians really matter. And so the way we've mm-hmm. been able to move the, you know, class-based populace um, mm-hmm. to, you know, to having a real race-conscious argument and an understanding that we can't fix corruption, we can't fix economic inequality without tackling racism, strategic racism, and racial disparities. That, as a new conventional wisdom on the left, that's huge. That's mm-hmm. huge. Um, that is a big deal. When I went out to Michigan, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania to knock on doors to see if we could have deep conversations with people uh, around immigration, uh, which is definitely a hotbed issue for a lot of folks, there were nights where it be, wouldn't be that odd to have five doors in a row where you basically had Sean Hannity answer the door. Um, mm-hmm. It was like, I mean, completely on message, the exact same message, and clearly all the meaning making happening from Fox News. And we kind of joke about it and say, well, Fox, I mean, it is so pervasive. It's, it is unbelievable. Yep. And obviously, you know, we could, I feel like we've been wringing our hands about it for a long time and now we're trying to figure out how do we like break through. Yeah. Coming out of this, what new meaning might people make about the role of government? Government is only as good as the people who 
are willing to do it. What I would love to see out of this is a sense of our best and our brightest, our most committed and ambitious surging into government service. I think the good news, George, is that the innate common sense of this moment mm-hmm. is we are all in this together. Yeah. That is where people are going. People mm-hmm. are sacrificing so much to to just keep each other safe. And that's 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 what we're doing right now. And that has to be the way we understand the the politics of this moment, not in Washington, but on, you know, every mm-hmm. other block in this country. That's what's happening. That's right. I've always found we're all in this together to like not quite there's something about it that I mean, I actually totally believe it and feel like as a kind of a slogan, it has not landed mm. with people. I think it's landing now. Yeah. I think it's totally landing now. And I think it's I think it's as big a deal as you just said. Yeah. I mean, that's that is a huge shift, right? I mean, American, you know, Uber narrative is so about the individual and we're not all in it together. And in fact, if there is something that we're all in together, we don't have a lot of respect for it, right? And <laughs> right? Um, um, it's like a bus or something. It's, you know, it's uh, it's a public school. It's something that we want to kind of like be be too good to be in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and right now there is a gut level sense of um, interconnectivity. Do you think more... Americans will be like, yeah, come to think of it, we actually, we need a strong government to be able to nail it in these moments. And my view towards the size and scope of the federal government is changing because of going through a pandemic. What is very clear to me is that everyone realizes that our government basically can't do shit. And the embarrassment, the national embarrassment of the purported greatest country on earth not being able to get masks to nurses and not being able to have cotton swabs for testing and needing a food drive of people sewing their own masks to get to hospitals and sending out broken ventilators. That's where we're starting, is a hyper-awareness of just how broken. And it's very clear that we need the government to do better in moments like this. But there is, I think, a real need for progressives to make meaning of why the government is so broken and unable to deliver at this moment. Mm. And when we say we want... Medicare for all, and we want, you know, big public housing, we have to be clear that it has to be better government, not just more government. What resonates for me about what you're saying in terms of getting into the complexity of we think there's a strong role for government and it can do better is I think it just makes us more credible. I think some of what we say without acknowledging, you know, that is in support of like larger government programs, a bigger social safety net, just and never acknowledging that sometimes it doesn't work the way we'd like it to actually really rings false with people. And so there's a there's an authenticity to it that I really like. It doesn't just ring false with anti-government people. It rings false, probably the most false (laughs) with people who have needed to rely on government. 
right? There's no one who's exactly. more uh, disgusted by government than someone who's had to sit in a welfare office or who's had their kid take it away because of a bureaucracy, right? right? Um, or, you know, who's, you know, had a paperwork problem meant that they got kicked out of their house because they didn't get their benefits. So it's very clear to me that in this moment, when people are literally dying because of an unwilling and incapable government, we have to both name why we are here, why our government has been both hollowed out and corrupted, and say that the new era that starts as soon as we get the power is one in which we all will have a role in transforming government. It'll require cleaning it up and beefing it up and making sure that it is fundamentally accountable to local communities in a way that it never has been before in this country. Are there like any policy areas like, so I'm listening to this and I want to be active and call my senator and, you know, kind of track all of this or, you know, member of Congress and where you think there's potential to win things for people now, but also maybe long-term viability and of a policy shift yeah. in an area, whether it's work or healthcare, are there the ones that come to mind you think we yeah. need to be tracking? So I'd say my number one is the essential worker bill of rights. That just feels like it's clean up. These are jobs that should be better jobs. And we can use the excuse of them being exposed as the backbone of our economy to make sure that they are not abusive jobs. So that feels clear, right? It's the same people who are the essential workers who are the workers who were fighting for 15 before this all started, right? So that feels very clear that finally we can recognize that the work that's being done by immigrants and women and people of color that is knitting together the country has always been essential work. And now they need to be recognized as the heroes that they are, and they need a voice on the job and healthcare and paid sick and higher wages. But I also think that we are going to have to fundamentally rethink what work is. We have a consumer driven economy and a lot of that consumption may not come back in the same way that it was. And still, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this country. And so I think we need a massive public jobs and service program that gets to work getting our infrastructure up from a D plus to maybe a C or a B, that gets to work having community <laughs> health infrastructure so that you know, we're able to check up on our neighbors and 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 deliver healthcare in a humane and comprehensive way that's rooted in community, that we're able to to care for each other, for our seniors and our children, all of these this work that needs to be done to rebuild our country is is good work. And it may not be, you know, checking somebody out at a department store or delivering some product to someone. So I think there needs to be a shift in the heartbeat of our economy from a consumption of cheap goods to meaningful work, helping one another, and building, mm-hmm. building what connects us. 
I love the frame of work that needs doing. That's always resonated with me. Actually, some of it makes, I would imagine, would be more fulfilling than some of the jobs that will be lost. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. People want to do even more than we're being asked to do. And we have to, I think, as organizers, give, keep that energy going and tap into it as a source of ongoing solidarity, organizing, and eventually, I think, prosperity. That is really hopeful. Hey, thanks for doing this. It was really fun. It was a good way to spend a night during a pandemic. Thank you, George. Always great to be with you. I've been organizing a good 25 years now. And the longer I do this, the more I think about change through the lens of the long view. We need to be incredibly impatient for change and able to understand the struggle within a longer arc. Heather's right. Amidst the financial crisis, we missed an opportunity to advance our nation's understanding of racism and how racism so often hurts us all. I also hear Heather saying much of the left was just not developed in the ways needed to shape the racial meaning-making of the financial crisis. The good news is this. Ten years later, we are more prepared to do so. And that's not an accident. If we stay focused and further develop our analysis and strategic chops, where might we be ten years from now? It's going to be hard. And I like what I see. You can learn more about what we talked about today at peoplesaction.org slash nextmove. You can find Heather McGee on Twitter at hmcgee. You can also pre-order her book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. In the meantime, check out her incredible TED Talk, Racism Has a Cost for Everyone. This podcast was produced by People's Action and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Melissa Lowe. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. Bye now.